So I don't know what happened in your house over Thanksgiving, but I would imagine a lot of us did what we always do. We've got our favorite Thanksgiving traditions that if we didn't do them that way, it just wouldn't be Thanksgiving, right? So I imagine many of us have a story of we did this and we cooked the turkey that way and then we watched this and we went there and that's just what the Thanksgiving tradition is and that's what makes Thanksgiving. As I think about growing up, uh, my favorite Thanksgiving traditions, I grew up in the South, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, which is really, North Florida is a lot like South Georgia. It's kind of a mixed southern environment there. And in my side of the family, we lived in the south, but there was another side of the family that they were true southerners. And we would always go over, there'd be cousins everywhere, and we would have Uncle Sammy's smoked pork butt every Thanksgiving. And, and, and if you're from the south, you know what I'm talking about. He had this old converted trash can that he would turn sideways and cut in half, and he would start smoking it in the middle of the night. And you get up every hour, like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. By the time we got to the early afternoon and we're eating Thanksgiving dinner, it was this, you know, just meat that you could pull apart. It had the cayenne pepper all over it. And to me, I mean, there was just nothing better than Uncle Sammy's pork butt every Thanksgiving. I just, I just could conceive of nothing better. That's what made Thanksgiving for me. Now, this year was a little bit different. It was a break from tradition for our family. So this year we had a quiet, quiet, I've got five kids. So we, we had a quiet Thanksgiving with just our family. My wife and my oldest daughter cooked and we had a great time together. We did some new things this Thanksgiving. We got all the Southerners coming up for Christmas, but Thanksgiving was quiet. Um, and so we decided to watch a movie on Thanksgiving night, something, what can we watch together as a family that would be, you know, a fun tradition type movie, not a cartoon, not one of the new movies, but something, something classic. Uh, so we chose Fiddler on the Roof. And aside from giving my younger kids nightmares, uh, it was, it was a really good choice. Um, but if you know the story of Fiddler on the Roof, it's all about tradition, isn't it? Uh, it's the story of Tevia and his family, it's this Jewish family living in this small Jewish town in Russia uh, in the early 1900s. And the, the movie opens, the music, it's a musical, so a big opening number where they're singing about tradition. And they're singing the praises of tradition and how things are as they always have been, and that's how we like it. We don't know how they got started, and we don't care how they got started, but we love tradition here in Anatevka, this little town. It's where they found their security. It's where they found their identity. Well, it's the story of those traditions breaking down and, and how Tevia, the main character, the father of five daughters and sort of leader of this little family, is a local milkman in this, in this small town, um, how the traditions break down and how he wrestles with God over the changes that are happening all around him. So it's changes within his family, his older three daughters. Uh, it's the story of them finding husbands, but not in the traditional way. They weren't matches made by the parents, but they were finding husbands for, for love of all things uh, and sort of breaking from the family tradition. And so you see Tevia just wrestling with the internal conflict over, this is not our tradition. This is not the way we've done it. And he would have these uh, humorous but poignant conversations with God what can I do? How can you, wrestling with the changes. Not only were there changes within the family, but also this was in a time when the imperial Russian government was starting to oppress the Jews. And so they were bringing persecution to the little town. Eventually they got driven out of their town. And so everything they had known, all of their traditions were changing right before their eyes. But the plot line, you're just following Tevia's conversation with God. 
Because these breakdowns of tradition have, have taken away his peace. And what's he going to do? And so eventually he's bit by bit, step by step, making peace with God and accepting that the new things are coming his way. Times were changing. It disrupted his peace, but then he gave it to God. So much so that one of the famous lines, he says to God, Lord, I know that we are your chosen people, but I wish sometimes that you would choose someone else because it just was so disruptive to his sense of peace. As was mentioned, we're entering into a series this Advent where we're talking about the subject of peace. And it's one of the great themes of Christmas if you read the story of the Bible. Uh, It's one of the great promises that's held out for us in the Messiah. Uh, The Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who was born that we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ. One of the great gifts that's promised for those who are followers of the Messiah is the gift of of peace. And so we're going to spend five weeks this Advent season exploring the peace that's held out for us. And, and I would just encourage us on the outset to think honestly about the peace in our own lives. I don't know where you are in your journey, but peace can be an elusive thing, can't it? Some of us feel an unrest about just the things in the world around us, a, a lack of peace. Uh, in governments and in nations and the things that are happening around the world. We think of Paris and, and Bahrain and just things around the world. They, they, they disrupt our peace, what's going on. Some of us, like Tevia, in our families and in the immediate world around us, maybe it's a job situation, relationship situation, and, and we're just searching for peace and we're, we're struggling. We have an internal conflict uh, coming into this season. And so we hear talk of peace, right? We hear kind of these language of Christmas, but sometimes it feels just like platitudes because our life just doesn't really mesh with what we say we believe sometimes. So I would invite us just to be honest with ourselves, with God, and to consider the peace that we're experiencing in our own lives or sometimes the lack of peace and invite God to do a work in us over these coming weeks as we move toward Christmas where he might grant us some of that peace that is promised. And we might experience that peace in real and intangible ways. That's what I want to invite us to. Let's let this Advent season be a season where we really do explore the peace that's held out for us in the promised Messiah. So I'm excited to launch us into this by turning to one of the great prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. So I'd invite you to go ahead and turn there. If you have a Bible, that's great. If not, there's one in the pew in front of you or you got a smartphone or a, a tablet of some sort, you can always pull up a Bible on there. But we're going to read together uh, in just a moment from Isaiah chapter 9. Just like Fiddler on the Roof is a story where traditions were breaking down and we were watching this internal struggle with it, this prophecy came to the nation of Israel in a time where traditions were breaking down, but in a different way. The opening chapters of the book of Isaiah is really a judgment being announced from God because his chosen people, the Israelites, were, were worshiping him, but their worship was really hollow. Um, if you know your Old Testament, the early chapters, we find God laying out exactly how his people were to worship him. Uh, and they were going through the motions for generations by the point of this prophecy, but their heart was far from God. Their, their worship was hollow. It was an empty form of worship, and God had had enough. And so there's an announcement of judgment from God saying, I've had enough 
of your false worship. I've had enough of your empty sacrifices when your hearts are far from me and your lives don't reflect my love and my character and my grace. You're just going through the motions. And so God is really calling them to judgment because their hearts were so far and their their worship was false. And so the way that judgment was going to come is through the nation of Assyria. And we find that uh, in chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Isaiah where he talks about how he's going to raise up this mighty neighboring nation of Assyria and he's going to come and they're going to conquer Israel and drive them out from their land and and the persecution is going to come and this is going to be from God as a judgment for their sin, for turning away from him. But then comes another promise, and this comes in Isaiah chapter 9, that he would not always leave them in judgment. There would be a time of peace and restoration and of restoring the people to himself. And this is where this prophecy comes in of this child who would be born. And we find it in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's speaking of the judgment of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation, speaking of the blessing that would follow the judgment. And here's the promise. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Speaking of rolling back this judgment. And then he says, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord to his people Israel living in Old Testament times and for you and for me and all who will hear the promises that he holds out. It's the promise of the ushering in of a kingdom of peace. And leading the way will be this figure who is called the Prince of Peace. And the prophecy says it will come in the form of a child. And this is who we are celebrating at Christmas. The child in the manger, Jesus Christ, is the promised Israelite Messiah who this prophecy names the Prince of Peace. And this prophecy talks about how he's going to usher in his kingdom of peace for all who would believe in him, for all who would follow him, for all who would enter his kingdom. And that promise is not just for its original hearers. It's a promise for you and me if we have ears to hear today. And so I would just invite us to tune our ears in to see how this peace, this kingdom of peace can be brought to each one of us and how we can lay hold of it in practical ways over these coming weeks this Advent. 
So we're going to do that by examining just two of these verses, really one of these verses, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, which is the heart of the prophecy. And there are six observations I want to make from, from just this one verse that really unpack for us how this promise of peace unfolds and who this Prince of Peace is and then how we're invited to respond to him. So first observation comes at the beginning of verse 6. And it says, for to us a child is born. Now imagine you're an Israelite, and the Assyrians have come, and they have conquered and oppressed your people, and this is your experience. Utter judgment, utter, utter oppression at the hands of this nation. And then a word of promise comes that the tables are going to be turned, that you're no longer going to be oppressed, but victory is going to come. What would you imagine that promise would be? For to you, a new weapon is given. For to you, a new leader is given. For to you, a new army from a neighboring nation, a new ally is given. That's what we might expect, right? Because that's what it would take to turn the tables on this oppressing nation. But no, it says, for to us, a child is given. And just like if you were an Israelite in this time, you'd be looking for some powerful means of overturning judgment If we're looking for peace in our lives, we're looking for something similar, aren't we? We're looking for, to us, a new job is given. For to us, a new relationship is given. For to us, there's some silver bullet that we're looking for that's going to bring us peace. That's just how we're wired. We're looking for that fix that's going to give us what we're lacking. And so a promise such as a child comes as something counterintuitive, both in the context of the Israelites and for us if we're looking for peace. But what does this signify? It says a couple of important things about the gift that's coming our way. What is a child? Well, a child's a person. It's a person who would grow, a person that we're invited to have a relationship with. And so right at the outset of the description of this Prince of Peace We're told that he's a child, he's a person, and we're invited to experience peace in the form of a relationship. Not a silver bullet, not a new insight, not a new weapon, but a relationship. Peace begins with a relationship. And not just any person, but a child. It's the weakest of all people. Speaks of the upside-down, counterintuitive ways of God. We were expecting We would be expecting someone mighty and powerful, but no, we get someone the least expected. There's a child sent to bring peace, a child sent to bring restoration. So it's a picture of the way God works is an unexpected turning of the tables. He invites us to a relationship in the most unexpected way. For to us, a child is given. But then it goes on. He builds on this identity of the Prince of Peace in the next phrase, and he says, to us, a son is given. And that's not just a restatement of the word child. There's significance in this title of a son. If you were an Israelite reading this prophecy, there would have been no doubt that he was referring to the Son of God, the promised Messiah who would come. And so this son who is given as a gift to God's people who were believing in him, to all who would believe, They're invited into a relationship not only with this child, with a person, but this person is also the Son of God. This person is deity. 
God become man, which again is the least expected means of God bringing a powerful gift. And it's interesting, not only in the context in which this prophecy was given, but also in the context when Jesus was born. Jesus was born at a time when there was another oppressor over the people of Israel. It wasn't Assyria, but at this time it was Rome. So when Jesus was born, the Roman government had power over the people of Israel. And if you remember the story, Jesus was taken from his hometown of Nazareth to Bethlehem to be born. Why was he taken to Bethlehem? Because Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman world, wanted to show a display of his power by taking a census of everyone who was under his domain. So he called everybody who lived within that Roman province to go from their hometown to Bethlehem, where sort of the town of their fathers in their region, which was Bethlehem for Jesus' family, to be counted. And the point was, Caesar was going to make a display of how vast and massive his kingdom was, a display of how mighty and powerful he was. And this is what we expect an act of power among the nations. And in the context of that display of power, God shows his power through the birth of a child in the humblest of means. His son entered into the world scene in a stable as a child to a poor, unassuming, unimportant family. And that's just the way God works. He begins to transform from the inside out. It's not through overt acts of power and force in redeeming and drawing people to follow him, but it's in the most unassuming, counterintuitive ways. And so in our quest for peace, we look for it in the most obvious ways, right? It's just the way we work. But we're called to have a different lens, to look for peace in the quietness, to look for peace in the inside. And then it works its way out. So to us, a child is given. It's a relationship with a person. To us, a son is given. It's a relationship with God himself, small as it may seem. And then it goes on. Third description of this prince of peace says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. So now we're beginning to see this kingdom that the Messiah is going to establish. This child would, would be born and then grow up to establish a kingdom where the government is on his shoulder. Now contrast this with typical kingdoms of the world, typical governments of the world, and especially in this context where you would have a king and those who are in power building their government on the backs of the oppressed. You think of all the, the world dictatorships and oppressive governments where things are built upon the shoulders of slaves built on the shoulders of those who are oppressed. And that mindset finds its way into really all the nations of the world because what's the mentality when you're in a kingdom where power is exerted from the top down and it's built on the backs of the oppressed? It calls on us to fight our way up, to fight that oppression by accomplishing more and moving our way up and fighting our way up. So peace means Achievement. Peace means conquering. Peace means exerting our will above someone else's. Because that's the way the government is established. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the government that the Prince of Peace is establishing. We're told that the government will rest on his shoulders. 
And the significance of this language in this prophecy is that that burden resting on his shoulders means that he has done all that is necessary to accomplish peace for everyone in his kingdom. So for those who live according to the government of Christ, who are part of this kingdom that he is announcing, it's not up to the followers to scrap and claw and find their way toward peace. No, peace is given as a gift from the prince, from the royalty, from the leader, from the king of this kingdom. And that's really what Jesus announced. If you read the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus' core message is the kingdom is at hand. And he's introducing a new kingdom that the world knew nothing of. He says, you see the kingdoms around you. You even see the kingdoms within you as we seek to establish our own rule in our lives. But he says, there is another kingdom. And it's held out for all who would believe and all who would follow after Jesus. This is his core message. Enter into his kingdom. By repentance and faith, we become part of something that's entirely different from the kingdoms of the world. The government will rest upon his shoulder. So there's something new being promised here, something unexpected being promised here. It's peace from oppression. It's peace in real life, in real time, when things are not working, when traditions have broken down, when our trajectory has not been leading toward peace Peace is promised through a relationship with a child, a child king. It's promised with a relationship with the Son of God himself. And it's promised in a kingdom that's different than the way the world works. This is what's held out for us. And then the prophecy begins to move toward a climax. And this is the language that's so familiar to us. It's in the songs that we sing at Christmas. And it's this familiar cadence. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then it culminates in this title, the Prince of Peace. This first name that's given is Wonderful Counselor. It's getting at the core of who this promised Messiah is, who this Prince of Peace is, and part of who he is, is he is a wonderful counselor. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a counselor? Well, who do you go for counsel? Where do you go for advice in life? You go to a parent, maybe a sibling, maybe a close friend or a mentor, maybe a teacher or a professor, someone in your life that you trust, that has wisdom that's beyond your experience, and you go to that person to receive counsel. Sometimes we go to people for counsel that aren't the most trustworthy. So there are all kinds of counselors in our lives, right? Some who want to give us counsel that we don't want that counsel. But whether we receive counsel from someone has everything to do with how we trust them, right? And here we have Jesus portrayed this Prince of Peace as a wonderful counselor. Not just any counsel, but even that the term wonder at the root of that adjective is that his counsel, his wisdom is perfect. It's otherworldly. It's from a different place than anything that we have experienced. And it's an invitation to trust the counsel of the Prince of Peace. It's a message that peace comes when we come into a relationship of trusting what he has taught. 
And then this becomes very practical for us. If we fast forward in our Bibles and we read the actual teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, we find wisdom from him, we find counsel from him, we find teaching from him that's in keeping with his kingdom, but it it causes us to think in different ways. So think of Matthew 6. It's sort of at the core of his teaching where he says, all the kingdoms of the world would say, Concern yourself with what you will eat. Concern yourself with what you will drink. Concern yourself with what you will have. And live your life pursuing those things that you would accumulate around you. But I say, seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things, all these necessities will be added to you. Trust that provision will come from your king in this new kingdom. It's wisdom. It's counsel. That meets us where we are. How do you live your life? How do you orient your days? What occupies your mind and your heart and your thoughts? How easy is it for all of us? And I do this. I'm so guilty of this. Wind up spending all of my attention on what we're going to do, where we're going to go, what are we going to get? Are we going to have enough? Are we going to have enough security? Are we going to have enough stability? Is is the savings account growing? Are we creating enough of of an environment for us that we're happy? And that's where our satisfaction comes from. And Jesus calls us to do something different. He gives us wisdom. He gives us counsel and says, that's not where peace is. If you want peace, seek my kingdom first and trust that I'll give you all that you need. That's wisdom. But it's wisdom that requires trust. And so wherever you are in your journey, I don't know if you've trusted Christ ever before. Maybe this Advent could be a time that you take a baby step of trusting some of the teachings of Jesus. That this title, Wonderful Counselor, wouldn't be just something that rolls off your lips at Christmas time, but might actually be something that characterizes the way you live your life. You might come into a relationship of trust in Jesus. Others of us may have placed our trust in Jesus at some other time in our life, at some previous time, and we would say we're living a life of trying to learn to trust him more and more, but man, we've kind of strayed away, and if I'm really honest, I'm really trusting a whole lot more in myself and the things that I'm doing, and I'm not really leaning into the wisdom that he has given. I don't even really read it very much. I don't really pay much attention. Um, And maybe this season is a time for you and me to renew our trust and to examine where our trust really lies. If Jesus truly is the wonderful counselor, if peace comes through leaning into his wisdom, then this could be a season where we do that afresh. And maybe that's one piece of where that peace could come from that's been so elusive for us. Simply learning to trust in the counsel of the Prince of Peace. It's part of what it means that he is the Prince of Peace. But then it goes on. He's not only called Wonderful Counselor, he's called Mighty God. And just in case we were to lose sight of his might and power when we're considering how he's born as a child, we're reminded that in this prophecy, he is the Almighty. A child though he may be, and even though he entered into the world in the most humble of situations, he is in fact the Almighty God. If he wanted to assert his will by show of force and more power overtly than all the kingdoms of the world, he certainly could. We're told in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth is in the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. So he is the Almighty. 
And it calls us to a response of submission. And there's another one we don't like. We don't like to trust other people. And we don't like to submit our will to others either. And so it gets pretty personal, doesn't it? If we're going to come to this Prince of Peace and receive the peace that he offers, then it involves a submission of our will, of our way of thinking, of our way of living to something new, to a higher authority. He is the mighty God. And he's choosing to use that power, to channel that power, to transform his people, both the Israelites and in their experience, and all who would hear him from the inside out. There's a power that can be at work inside you and me that can bring a peace that we've never known before. There's power there. There's real power there. It's a power that is higher and greater and deeper wider than any power of any kingdom. He is the mighty God. And then he's called the everlasting father. And this is interesting, isn't it? If we know the Trinity, we know there's the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. This is a prophecy about the son. We're told that at the beginning, for to us a son is given. This is the son of God. And so what's going on here? Why why is the son called the Father. Well, just to be clear, there's not a confusion of identity here. We don't have an identity crisis within the Trinity. God the Father remains God the Father, but we're talking about the nature of Jesus' reign as the Prince of Peace has a quality of an everlasting Father. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a true Father in a perfect sense? I don't know what your relationship is like on this earth with your father. I don't know those of you who are dads. I don't know what your relationship is like with your kids. But on this earth, our experience of fathers is a mixed bag, right? A mix of wonderful fatherly love and care and and a mix of brokenness because we're all sinful. We all fail. But the perfect portrait of a father that is held out for us is one of love and protection and care and guidance and provision that's everlasting. So that kind of loving care of a father characterizes the Prince of Peace in his relationship with all who would enter into his kingdom. With you and with me, we can enter into a relationship as with a perfect father. And that relationship will never be broken. It's everlasting. And that doesn't just mean that it's never-ending, but that it's consistent from now and forevermore. The chapter, um, chapter, verse 7 goes on and says, The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so it's this idea that when we come into this kingdom, when we come into this submission to the Prince of Peace, we enter into this relationship with him as with a father, and it will never fail. It's consistent day in and day out, the loving care, the nurturing care of a father, which means even though we can't see what's going on and we might feel like things are not moving forward or not going well or not going according to plan, he knows. How many of you, as children, however old you are, you think about your parents 
and the plans that they had and how there were times as kids, we just didn't understand what was going on. Where are we going? What are we doing? The wheels are falling off, Dad. But how often did Dad have a plan? And even though we didn't understand it, we learned as we grew, we could trust him. So it is with God. Even though we can't see where we're going, we can't see how peace would come through certain circumstances, we can trust in the everlasting care of that Father. And this is where peace is found. Peace is found in honoring that father. It's one of the core commands of scripture. Honor your father and mother. And so here we're invited into a relationship of honoring Christ, of honoring the prince of peace. And so the practical application for us this Advent season, this Christmas season, as we come into hearing the story, telling the story, singing the songs, doing the traditions that we love at this time of year, Are we just going through the motions like the Israelites? Or are we truly going to honor Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is not just the the baby in a manger, not just the son who was given, but who has a fatherly love for us that we're called to honor. And so there's a claim that Jesus lays hold for all of us who would follow him. It's a claim and an invitation to trust him, to submit to him, to honor him, to trust him as that wonderful counselor, to submit to him as the mighty God, to honor him as the everlasting father. And what we're promised in exchange is peace. How many of us are seeking peace in all kinds of ways this Christmas? And we're invited to find it, maybe for some of us, in the least expected way. It comes when we lay down that eternal effort to carve out peace for ourselves through what we can accomplish. It's found in turning away from trying to build up our own power as much as we possibly can. It's found when we we quit trying to go our own way and we find a home in the everlasting Father that is Jesus Christ. And so that's what I would invite us to this Christmas, to experience the peace that only he can provide. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the King. He's the Ruler. And to experience something new this Advent season. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're all seeking peace. And sometimes it's so hard to know where it comes from. And so thank you for the clarity of this prophecy that shows us exactly where peace is found. It's in the Prince of Peace. And so we just ask that you would accomplish that promise in our lives. Soften our hearts to receive the gift of a relationship with you, of following your teaching, trusting in you, submitting to you and honoring you. And we just pray that you would give us that peace that we so long for this year in real time and in real space. And we want to give you honor and glory and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.